going to be diving into the, to the life of Jesus. And we're going we're gonna to be talking about two different parts. We're going to be talking about Jesus right before, uh, uh, during Passover. And we're going to be talking about Jesus about 10, 11 months before that. But most importantly, what we're going to be talking about is what Jesus did when he laid the foundation for the most contagious thing that ever happened was, and that's Christianity. Christianity should not be around if we're being completely honest, but somehow God has, this, this thing has blossomed, and it, you know, the early church is the reason that me and you get to be here today, worshiping our Savior today. And I want to make a quick statement real quick, is that Jesus didn't come to add on to what was happening at the time. He didn't come to add on to the Jewish culture. He didn't come, on, uh, didn't come to add on to the Ten Commandments. He came to make a new covenant. He came to make a new covenant, a new relationship with man and with God. You see, what the relationship had been before is it had only been a vertical relationship where love was only expressed vertically. It didn't matter how you treated your neighbors. It didn't matter how you treated your family, your friends, whatever. All that mattered was that if you did the right things, if you sacrificed the right things, then you were in right standing with God. Well, then Jesus comes on the scene and he starts to change that. He starts to change the narrative. He comes and he, he gives us a new command, a new command and a new covenant. And in that new covenant, he gives us the fine print of the new covenant that he wants us to walk out. And this new covenant and this new fine print, it turns into a movement, us, the church. And we are here because of the first century church, because they got this and it exploded in their life. And Jesus, throughout the time that he was on earth, he hinted at this. He would say things like, great people, you shouldn't go to the front of the line. You should go to the back of the line. You, you shouldn't be first. You should be last. This is countercultural at the time. This isn't what happens at the time. You see the people who were the, the, the elites, they always went first. They went before everyone. And now Jesus is saying, instead of you going first, you should go last. Or in a religious system that valued cleanliness, that valued people being clean all the time, Jesus says, instead of you being clean, the people who are actually the cleanest on the inside are the people with the dirtiest hands. This is in a time where people, where if you were sick, people would not be around you. If you th thought quarantine was a new thing, it wasn't. Any sickness that you ever got, they immediately put you out of the camp and you were not able to come back until you were completely healed or until the sickness was gone. And so he's changing values. He's changing the system. And so I want to pick up in Jesus' story. Right now he is on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover with his disciples. And when the religious leaders hear about this and they hear about, oh my goodness, Jesus is, is going over to celebrate the Passover, they start to say, hey, let's, let's find Jesus. Let's hopefully find him without a crowd because Jesus was so popular. He was so in demand. He was the person to be around that they, they knew they couldn't arrest him around the crowd. So they started sending spies to find Jesus so he could be alone so that they could arrest him. And so... This is what it says, in fact, in, uh, in John chapter 11, verse 50 says, it says, but the chief priests 
and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so they might arrest him. Now it turns out it was very easy to find Jesus. All you had to do was find the crowd and you found Jesus. So they found out it's very easy to find Jesus. It's really hard to arrest Jesus. You see, Jesus was protected because it wasn't his time yet. In fact, they were say, uh, in, in John chapter 12, verse 12, it says, it, it, the great crowd had come to the festival, heard that Jesus was on his way. So Jesus wasn't even just around a crowd of people like this. It was a great crowd. It was a big crowd. He was surrounded by a lot of people, and a lot of people liked him. And so they knew we cannot get him without the crowd. And so they, they, they started plotting, starting to try to find a way to, to get Jesus. And then Judas probably realized, he's like, wait a second. I, I think Jesus really hasn't come to establish the kingdom of Israel. I don't think he's come to do that. And so Judas starts to probably plot and try to find a way. Like, hey, how do I make the most out of, out of this? And so what Judas ends up doing is he ends up running some errands. And he goes and he, he goes to the chief priest and says, hey, I can get you Jesus alone. I can get you Jesus without the crowd. Because they knew that they couldn't get Jesus with the crowd, so they had to find a way to get Jesus without the crowd. So Jesus, or so Judas, not Jesus, so Judas looks for an opportunity to do it. And it says it in Luke 22, 6, he consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. So Jesus finds his opportunity. He hands him over to be crucified, and, they, and the chief priests, their plan succeeds, but they did not win. Because Jesus' plan was not to live forever on earth. It was to be a human sacrifice for our sins so that we could live forever with him in heaven. And he gave his life to be a sacrifice for us. But before he did that, he had a couple of, a couple of little things that he wanted to tie up and, and that. And so the first thing, so if you're taking notes today, the first thing that Jesus changes is he changes up Passover. No longer would it be a remembrance of Moses and the children of Israel. He says, when you take Passover, it's not a remembrance of me. When you take communion, it's a remembrance of me. This is my bread, he said, and in it is life in your love. This is my blood. And he takes, the, he takes the bread and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. He was foreshadowing what was about to happen in his life. And then he takes the wine and says, this is my blood which I make in the new covenant. This is countercultural to everything it is. His 12 disciples should have been like, um, excuse me, Jesus. Um, what are you saying? We've been doing this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and now you're coming in and changing this? He was changing the narrative because it wasn't an, it wasn't an add-on. It was a instead of. This is a big deal. No longer will the covenant be conditional. Conditional. Instead, it will be based on what Jesus is about to do on the cross and it will be unconditional and no longer will it be a only Jewish movement, it will be a all mankind movement. And all, it will not be just a Jewish, but it will be a unilateral covenant with all mankind that we will all get to celebrate with the Savior. This is a new 
relational agreement that Jesus was making with them today. And since it, this was a new relationship, there are some new conditions. Come on, someone say amen. There's some new conditions. We no longer have 600 laws. He's making a couple of things that we want, he wants us to follow. And it wasn't going to be an and. It was going to be an instead of. He was coming to replace everything that was in place. So, for example, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of take you back to about 10, 11 months uh, uh, previous in his life to kind of explain what Jesus was doing and the little breadcrumbs that he was leaving that he wanted to show. Like, hey, guys, this isn't the same thing that it always has been. There's something changing, and I want you to get this. And so we're going to pick up our story in Matthew chapter 22, 15 through 16, and this is what it says. So basically, the Pharisees and the, before I read it, sorry, before the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, at this point, they are trying to get Jesus away from the crowd. They want to be early on the appointment that Jesus has. But Jesus, knowing all things, decides I, or knowing all things, has the wisdom to strike down their answers every single time. So in, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 15, it says, Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his own words. And so they're trying to trick him. They're trying to get him to say something that's countercultural to the, to the word of Moses that which they held up in such high esteem. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. So the people who are the crowd, the people who are loving Jesus, the people who are like, man, everything this person says is so amazing. Can we get some more of this, please? And so this is what they say. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the ways of God in accordance to the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you, know, you don't pay attention to who they are, so they're, they're kind of buttering them up. They're like, hey, Jesus, you look so good today. Is that a new robe? Those sandals look good, Jesus. Come on. So they're buttering up, and then they say, so Jesus, so we pay our taxes to Caesar. And Caesar, or not Caesar, and Jesus, knowing what he's doing, says, well, let me see a coin. And he says, Whose face is on this coin? And they're like, well, it's Caesar's. And he goes, well, render to Caesar's what's to Caesar's, and to what render to God what's to God. Well, this shocks the Pharisees. Their little disciples are like, oh, I don't know what to say right here. So they go back to the, to their, the people who are in charge of them, and they're like, oh, we don't know what to do here, guys. Well, the Pharisees having failed, the Sadducees are like, hey, we'll take our shot right now. We'll, we'll figure this out. And so they, they're up next, and they ask this question. He said, teacher, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up the offspring for him. So basically, this was a, a, this is a good law back then. Life was a lot harder. Didn't have grocery stores that you could kind of go to. And so basically, if, if, a, if a woman was at, without a husband or without a family, they, she could starve to death. And so basically, this was to help protect her and bring protection to the family. It, this would not be a good law now. Let's not do that again. Let's leave that back then. <laughs> and so this is what it says. This is, their, this is their question. Now, there were seven brothers among us, and the first one married a woman and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. And so they kind of go on and on. They're like, hey, so this brother uh, has the wife. She, uh, he dies, and so on and so forth, until all seven brothers have died. The woman is left alive. She outlives all the guys. Everyone's still alive. And then she dies and goes to heaven. 
And so they ask him a question. They ask Jesus, whose wife shall she be in heaven? Now, the reason that they're asking this question is because the Sadducees don't believe in an afterlife. They believe that once you die, it's over. So they were sad, you see. They're sad all the time. They're like, this isn't going anywhere. This life's kind of pointless. There's nothing after this. And so they're, 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 they're asking this question, but Jesus responds to them, and he says, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And they're like sitting there, this, this is what we do for a living, God, or Jesus. This is what we do all the time. All we do is read the book of the law. All we do is read what God has done. And he goes, at, as, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. But the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God has said to you? I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now at this, the crowd is going wild. Because the, sad, because the people are always looking at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they're always telling them what they're doing wrong. And Jesus has just put both groups down in their place. Don't you love it when you got a family member who's always talking smack, and someone says something, and you're like, ooh. I don't do that, but I like, I like watching that happen sometimes. But so the crowd goes wild. In fact, it even says it in the Bible. It says Matthew 22, verse 33. When the crowd heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees get together. So the crowd has gone wild. They're like, oh my goodness gracious. LeBron James has just done this amazing dunk. And, it, and, and Jesus is like, yeah, let me show you one better right here. And so... Seeing this, they are like, wow, this is, a, this is a pretty amazing teacher right here. And so the Pharisees are like, we got to do something here. We are running out of opportunities. And so the Pharisees decide, hey, you know what? We're going to send our best guy in here. And so they send an expert in the religious law. He was a lawyer. And so let's pick up in verse 35. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. He said, teacher... Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, for all of us who are here today and all of us who are, are watching online, we, 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 we haven't been really taught this as much, but back then, everyone knew what was the greatest uh, commandment in the law. In fact, as Jesus was probably about to say this, everyone in the crowd and in the audience could have mouthed this along with him because they all knew the answer. They knew exactly what was coming. And so Jesus replies, and he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And so I can imagine the lawyers, he's probably got a question, because he already knows what the answer is going to be. And so as he's getting ready to, to zing Jesus, Jesus adds, it, adds something on. He says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is a huge transition, because no longer was it just a a God, I, I love God, but now it is a, I have to love my neighbor. I have to love the people around me. This is a huge shift from not only, I don't have to just please God, I have to help, I have to help other people. I have to help people around me. I have to help see where they are, where they're going, who's around me. All, verse 40 says, and all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Everything. Everything that you've read about from Genesis 
forward is all hanging on these two commandments. Nothing goes away from this. And so for us, as we're, as we're reading our Bibles now, as we're reading uh, what's going on around us, or, or reading in the Bible, what's happening, if you ever get confused, you can go back to that commandment and say, love your neighbor as yourself. Everything goes around that. You don't ever have, if you ever get confused, you can always go back there and know, this is what God wants me to have in my life. In my main point today, your love for God is illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated for your love for people. It's not illustrated by the, oh, I come to church and I raise my hands all the time. It's illustrated by how you are dealing with and coming with other people and saying, I love this person so much, even when they drive me crazy. Even when we don't see things the same way. Even when things don't look the same way to us. Your love for God is illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated in your love for other people who may not look like you, who may not act like you, may not even like you as a person. You may not like them as a person. And so before Jesus goes to the cross, he starts reiterating this point. He's already made that statement 10, 11 months ago, but he's like, this is important, guys. I got to bring it up, back up right now. So in John chapter 13, verse 34, they are at the Passover dinner. And Jesus starts to say, I'm going to give you a new command I give you. Love one another. And some of us, he might say like, oh, you've already told us this before. He goes, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. He's basically saying, hey, I, I, I wish, this might have happened, it might not have, but I feel like Jesus could have gone around the room and said, do you remember when I loved you? Do you remember that situation you were in? Do you remember that circumstance you were in? Hey, Matthew, remember when you were a tax collector and you, and, and you weren't living your life right? And Matthew could have said, yes, Lord, I remember. Hey, Peter, remember when I met you? He could have gone around the room time and time again and known, hey, remember this? Remember when I loved you through that? You go, and the next verse says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He's making the point that people would know you actually love God by the way that you love other people. It's not this, oh, I go to church every Sunday. How do you love the people who are around you, who do not look like you, who do not think like you, who are of the other political party than you? He's saying, will you love them still? Will you love them still? Will you love them when they don't think like you? When they don't act like you? Will you love the unlovable people? The people who maybe made some mistakes in their life? Will you love the people who, who get on your everlasting nerves? People will know that you love God by, when you, by the love that you give other people. Comparing this to the law, it makes everything so uncomplicated. This is simpler to understand and to get, but it is so much harder to apply. Uncomplicated, but so much more demanding. 
You see, when it comes to rules, you can always find a loophole. You can always find something that's, oh, hey, like, I don't know. If you've ever met, met a middle school boy, you know what I'm talking about because they find their way around every single rule that you could ever put upon. Hey, man, we not run on the chairs? And they're like, well, I, my knees are on it. I'm not running. I'm like, that's, that's, you know, well, you're not wrong. But <laughs> they always find a loophole. See, rules have loopholes. You can, if, you, if I gave you a set of rules, you could find a way around, oh, well, if I do this, I'm technically not doing that. And this is what Jesus is calling out the Pharisees and the Sadducees for. He's like, you might be following the law, but you're actually, for, you're missing the point of why those rules are in place. You might be going to church, and he, I believe Jesus could have said this, you might be going to church all the time, but you're not actually loving who I actually am. You're not actually loving the people that I've put around you in your life. You're not actually loving the wife that I gave you in your life. You're not actually loving the husband that I gave you in life. And Jesus is making the example of love people. If you ever get confused, love people. I don't know what to do in this situation. Love people. We're disagreeing on this one thing. Let's love each other. And he keeps making this point over and over again. When, uh, this movement that we get to be a part of starting in the early church should not have made it, but it really shouldn't have made it through what happened in the third century. I like history, so I apologize if you don't, but I'm gonna tell you a history lesson anyways. Anyway, the third century church had this opportunity the best. Third century, Rome is in charge of the empire and basically the world comes unglued writings taking place. The Roman Empire almost falls. And in this situation, the Roman Empire used to give food to the people who were hungry. It was a way of, of them helping out society. Well, in this time, it stops. So people start starving to death. And you know who was there to fill the void? It was the church. It wasn't another political party that rose up and started it, it was the church that started feeding the hungry that was there. This was countercultural. This was different. People would have said, why are you not taking care of yourself? Why are you, why are you helping out people in need? Why are you going above and beyond? And all of a sudden, people start to get hope in their life. And it wasn't ever because they heard a, an amazing message about Jesus. It was literally because they started doing things that people needed to, needed to feel in their life. They just needed bread. They just needed to eat. And so all of a sudden, the third century church got to minister the love and hope of Jesus from a very practical thing. This is a brand new thing. It's, it's even so new that the New Testament's not really there. And so Paul illustrates this all the time of saying, love one another. It all hangs on that. If we can get this right, it changes everything. It changes people's lives. It changes people, how they perceive. Love one another, just as I have loved you. 